This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. So the, the initial goal of the project was to see if we could use aspergillus uh, koji to bypass both the malting and the mashing process. This week on the show, our friends from Appalachian State join us in Calgary to talk about their work evaluating koji as an alternative to traditional malting. Hi, my name is Brett Taubman. I'm a chemistry professor at Appalachian State University and I direct the fermentation sciences program there. Hi, I'm Tom Williams, an undergrad student at uh, Appalachian State University, uh, the Fermentation Science Department. Okay, guys, uh, tell us, what exactly is koji? Yeah, so uh, koji, it's a filamentous uh, fungi, um, typically used in uh, Asian cuisines. You typically see it made or used in the making of sake. Uh, I think that's probably where it's most known for, but you also see it show up in the making of uh, soy sauce, shoyus, misos, um, and it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's basically a, a, a fungus that produces uh, alpha amylase enzymes, and that's why you see it used so much in uh, these different cuisines and in the making of sake and things like soju. It also has uh, pretty good protease activity, and so you get lots of good umami flavors as a result of the uh, proteolytic activity from the koji. And uh, just to clarify, koji actually refers to the aspergillus, the mold itself, when it's on a substrate. Uh, And so typically that substrate would be rice in the production of sake or soybeans, for example, in the production of miso. Uh, We're more interested in that substrate being barley uh, for the production of beer. And what exactly did you want to do with koji? Give us some more details there. So the, the initial goal of the project was to see if we could use aspergillus uh, koji to bypass both the malting and the mashing process. We pretty quickly realized that uh, we couldn't use it to completely bypass mashing, uh, that we would still have to, to mash 
the koji inoculated barley, but uh, we still have explored the possibility of bypassing the malting process, and that seems like a possibility from our research. And now we're uh, also exploring the, the possibilities of using this as a means of producing sour beers. And I'd just like to point out, too, that any difficult questions, please direct those to Tom. He's the one who's done all this work. Fair enough. Uh, this isn't a totally new concept. Tell us about some of the previous work that was done in this area. Uh, yeah. So, well, I think more uh, uh, contemporary examples. You, you do have some breweries here and there that are actually using koji to, uh, to make quick sours. Uh, we've actually been approached by a few folks here who've uh, told us of folks they know that are using it. Uh, in their mash to achieve um, uh, sour beer. But uh, historically, uh, we, uh, when going back to look up the, li- the literature, uh, there was a gentleman, uh, Dr. Jokichi Takamine. He was a uh, chemist, and uh, he um, isolated the amylase enzyme in koji, or in aspergillus, uh, patented it and marketed it as a digestive aid, uh, earned a small fortune from that, uh, and then directed his efforts towards seeing if it could be used. You could use the uh, amylytic um, uh, capabilities of aspergillus in uh, whiskey mash. Uh, and, and he made some significant headway. They found that it was almost comparable uh, to uh, the malted barley at the time. We're talking early 20th century here. Um, but uh, unfortunately, under some mysterious circumstances, his production facility and his laboratory uh, were burned down. You know, there's speculation as to the reasons why that happened. But uh, from that point forward, his research um, into using aspergillus in uh, um, the, the production of fermented beverages kind of went to the wayside. And, um, you know, he focused his research elsewhere. So we've, we've taken cues from some of the research he's done. Uh, we've taken some cues from the, the folks at Noma who use koji in a lot of their cuisines. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's where we've uh, tried to take some inspiration and uh, some, get some guidance in how to do this. All right. There are quite a few different strains of koji. Do you want to tell us about some of the strains that you've worked with? Uh, yeah, so predominantly we've been working with uh, red rice koji. We found so far out of the strains we've tested that that's giving us the uh, best mash efficiency and uh, extracting the most sugars for us out of the grain. Uh, we have used white koji, and uh, the, the results were less than ideal, though we did see uh, it did have that souring capability. Uh, we, we tried to scale up one batch using that strain and uh, took a mash or a, a pH measurement of that match. It was 3.8 uh, after adding sodium bicarb. So um, there's, there's definitely something going on there. And then we've, you know, we've, we've worked on growing strains like black koji. It's known for its... Uh, uh, citric acid production. We've um, grown Aspergillus lutuensis, uh, also another strain known for citrusy tropical fruit aromas. Um, uh, even Aspergillus soje, uh, that one you get more of a terpene quality. Um, you you probably describe it as dank. Uh, and I think that one you typically see used in uh, uh, light soy sauces, typically Korean soy sauces. So we've, we've worked with a few different ones, each bringing something unique to the table. Um, and thus far in the context of brewing, it's uh, really, we've been narrowed our, our focus on red rice koji uh, to date. All right, tell us about the process. How do you go about malting barley with koji? So it's, it's not a malting process per se, uh, but we are modifying. Air quotes modifying, there, but yeah. Right, right. <laughs> air quotes, I, yeah. I saw them. Yeah. 
but we are we are certainly uh, modifying the uh, the endosperm in that grain and and so what we're doing is we're taking pearled barley uh, because that pearled barley has had both the bran and the germ removed so that the uh, the, the fungi can actually access the starchy endosperm and so the the barley is steeped in water overnight and then dried and then steamed briefly to tenderize it a bit uh, and once that's done then it's put into a, a, a fermentation chamber it's a proofer that we modify to be able to better control the temperature and the humidity and um, it's left for about 24 hours initially after inoculation with the the koji uh, at about 30 to 35 degrees Celsius and 75% uh, humidity. Is that right? Um, see, I looked at Tom to, for any of these uh, technical details. But uh, after about 24 hours post-inoculation, you won't see much growth. You take the, the substrate out, you mix it up physically with your hands, preferably with gloves on so you don't uh, inoculate it with anything else, and then put it back into the proofer for another 24 hours. And that transformation, that second 24 hours, is really quite incredible because you go from what looks like raw pearl barley to just completely covered in this mold growth. And, and different colors, different aromas, different flavors, depending on what the species or the strain of the, the aspergillus was that you used. So really quite amazing. After that, uh, typically we'll take it out. We'll dry it for another 24 hours or so, uh, and then it goes into cold storage. Uh, and, and that cold storage we've determined is a really important factor because it seems like we're getting quite a bit more amylolytic activity during cold storage. And so two to three weeks, probably three weeks, uh, seems to be the optimal point for that amylolytic activity. And so we seem to get the best extract out of those grains that post-inoculation and post-fermentation, that two-day fermentation, three weeks of cold storage seems to give us the best extract for our mash. Uh, you already mentioned a little bit about the details of pearled barley, but I, I wanted to maybe elaborate on that a little bit because there's probably a lot of brewers that are not familiar with that, that product. So is there anything else you want to add about what, what the difference between pearled barley and a, and a typical barley that a brewer might be used to? So the, the key for using pearled barley was that we wanted an unmalted barley. And we wanted the aspergillus to be able to access the endosperm in that. So rather than just getting uh, unmalted barley that would typically be used uh, for malting uh, for a brewery, uh, that would still have the husk on there. It would still have the bran layer, you know, the alurone, the pericarp testa. Uh, it would still have the embryo in there, the, the germ. And, and that would just get in the way uh, of the aspergillus. That pearled barley, that's been removed. Those layers have been removed, similar to the rice for sake production. You get the bran and the germ removed from that. That rice is polished so that then the, the aspergillus can better access the starchy endosperm, break down the protein matrix in there, access the starches in there, break those down with the amylolytic enzymes into fermentable sugars. And, and then the proteolysis creates lots of crazy, delicious, fun, umami types of flavors. And that al uh, I can never say that word, the alluron layer, is it's completely gone in this situation or is there still some of it? I, I believe it is completely removed, yeah, in that, the process of producing that pearl barley. Okay, and it, so it wouldn't be practical to use like a hullist barley or anything here? That, that wouldn't work? 
No, I, I think, uh, I mean, you certainly could, but, but then you'd also potentially, potentially activate you know, the enzymes, that, that process. If you had the aluron layer in there and the germ in there, uh, you run that risk. Plus, it would be more difficult, I think, for the aspergillus to access the endosperm. up again very tart very umami lots of mushroom flavors um, lots of tropical fruits and and uh, citrus fruits and and apple types of aromas and flavors as well i'm john bryce and you're listening to the master brewers podcast from the master brewers association of the americas Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Brewer Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. From large and small breweries to home brewers, we've provided the beer industry with the best fermentation yeast since 2003. The yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. Lots of district meetings continue to be canceled due to social distancing policies employed to fight the coronavirus pandemic. Definitely check out the calendar of events at mbaa.com for the latest details. Here's what the calendar looks like as of March 26th. District New England's April 3rd meeting has been canceled. District St. Louis meets April 16th at Second Shift Brewing. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course has been canceled. The District Northern Rockies meeting in Butte, Montana has been postponed. The District Philly Spring meeting at Stouts Brewing Company May 1st has been postponed. The District Northern California Spring Meeting is May 7th at Drake's Brewing. District Northern Illinois holds its Spring Technical Conference May 8th at Hofbrau House in Chicago. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River May 15th and 16th. The District Texas Spring Meeting has been rescheduled. The new date for that is May 29th in Fort Worth. District Midwest meets at BrewDog June 27th. The best brewing conference worldwide only happens every four years and it's happening this August. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. 
Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. What can you tell us about the enzyme spectrum produced by Koji? You've mentioned a, a, a few different enzymes, but you know, obviously a barley kernel leverages a lot of different enzymes, um, each of which have an important job. Can Koji really produce a similar enough enzyme package to what is already in a naturally occurring barley kernel? It certainly produces a lot of alpha amylase. Um, out of eukaryotic organisms, it is the, the biggest producer of uh, alpha amylase. Uh, as far as the other amylolytic enzymes, it's definitely more challenging to determine what specific enzymes there are. Like Tom was saying before, there has been a decent amount of research. Obviously, people have been working with Koji for probably thousands of years at this point. But the amount of research that has been done that is actually relevant to our industry is virtually non-existent. So trying to do that literature research as a baseline, a foundation for the research that we're doing has been really challenging. So we're kind of trying to establish a lot of those baseline measurements right now and figure out what is exactly going on. Uh, there are certainly a number of proteolytic enzymes, amylolytic enzymes. Besides alpha amylase, though, I'm not quite sure uh, what the other amylolytic enzymes that are present in there. It probably varies quite a bit, strain to strain and species to species. There doesn't seem to be a lot of beta-glucanase in there, that's for sure, because we've had a lot of issues with beta-glucan, uh, certainly the soluble beta-glucan in there, because we've gotten lots of very sticky gooey, viscous mashes as a result of our experimentation. Well, you just have to talk to Mark Sammartino. He was just up here talking about uh, beta-glucanases that can be added, so maybe there's something to work with there. Um, at the end of this process, how similar is the final product to malted barley or tr traditionally malted barley? If, if we were to look at you know, a malt analysis side-by-side, side, what would really stand out? That's a good question. Um, you know, and, and without having actually tested for a lot of the similar parameters that you would do in a standard malt analysis, it, it's really tough to tell. Um, like I say, beta-glucan levels would definitely be off the charts too high. <laughs> uh, as far as modification um, and, you know, nitrogen versus total soluble nitrogen and, and measurements like that, I'm, I'm not exactly sure since we haven't done those measurements. Uh, but it would be really interesting to do a side-by-side -side comparison with malted barley. And uh, I predict you're probably going to see a huge difference in the uh, organic acids uh, in that koji barley versus that, uh, you know, typical traditional malted barley. Um, because, you know, as, as mentioned, it does lend itself well to uh, uh, sour beer. And, uh, you know, so I, I think we're, we're going to anticipate finding uh, some levels of lactic acid, um, maybe some citric acid. And I think it's going to vary by the strain. Um, uh, it, 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 it also does produce uh, kojic acid, too. We might even... Uh, see that. So I, I think that's another huge difference you might, we, we anticipate seeing between uh, a koji barley and a traditionally malted barley. Okay, next you did some trials to size up mash efficiency. Talk about that. Uh, yeah, so um, we just did it on a small scale first. Um, 
uh, basic premise was take 500 milliliters of uh, hot liquor, um, mash in uh, roughly half that, so 250 grams of uh, koji barley, uh, mashed it at 66 degrees Celsius, you know, optimal for uh, alpha amylase activity, um, and then um, laudered that, took a, a gravity reading to compare it to our control, which was a two-row barley and a pearled barley, um, and uh, as mentioned earlier, within the with the white koji strain, we really weren't seeing ideal uh, mash efficiency. But with the red rice koji strain, we saw um, really uh, uh, a seven point difference uh, between the red rice koji strain and our control, the two row. Uh, so uh, it, it was uh, pretty promising to see that. Um, and um, uh, from there, we um, went ahead and fermented some of those samples as well to see. Uh, what kind of result we get, and you know, as expected, we we had um, sugar to ethanol conversion with uh, with the yeast. So, um, on a small scale, it works. Give us some more details about those fermentations. Uh, yeah, so um, we uh, we took actually a few different samples. We took uh, koji barley that had sat for two weeks in cold storage, three weeks, four weeks, um, and we let them ferment over a period of seven days. Um, we, we ran, we ran uh, a test on those to, to see what kind of ethanol production we had. And uh, out of the samples that we've done so far, so far it, it's been a relatively small sample size. But um, of the samples we've done thus far, um, our uh, average real degree of fermentation was around 51%. Um, you know, our, our, our range for uh, ethanol or alcohol by volume was anywhere from 35 to almost 6 um, so there, there was a, a good deal of ethanol production, depending on um, which strain, or I mean, not which strain, but um, which koji, whether it was two, three, or four week being used, because obviously the mash efficiency, the amount of sugars extracted was different between each of those. What, um, do you want to talk about the yeast, yeast selection and the uh, attenuation levels and that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, um, we used uh, just a typical USO5, so five dry yeast, um, um, added, added that to each of our samples, and um, again, uh, as far as attenuation goes, um, the average for our real degree of fermentation was uh, 51%. Um, and then also, I think when you actually physically looked at the, uh, the finished product, you had a lot of those proteins settle out of solution. Um, granted, it, it, it was a sizable portion that, of, of that uh, fermented product that you saw those proteins uh, make up. But, um, you know, I think that's one of the things we're trying to work through is, as mentioned earlier, we're trying to figure out how to uh, reduce those beta-glucans and those other proteins that have been in solution. Again, you still see them settle out of solution towards the end of fermentation, but uh, still not ideal to have those. And so those are some of the things we're trying to work through to figure out how to uh, minimize that. Let's hear about the flavor profiles of these beers. Anything that resembled normal beer flavors? Uh, for uh, normal beer profile, I would say no. <laughs> and, and I think uh, that's why we initially chose the white koji to work with, is because that one seemed to have the most, the flavor profile that was most conducive to just standard beer production. Um, it, it seemed to best mimic, I think, that malted barley type of, of flavor profile. Uh, unfortunately, the, the mash efficiency for that was terrible. Uh, that's when we switched to the red rice koji. Um, and that definitely has a lot more umami character. We got a lot of lactic tartness, um, little citric acid, lots of tropical fruits. 
Uh, it seems to be much more conducive to sour beer production, certainly. Um, and I think that's the direction we'll probably take this at this point. And we didn't brew with uh, a lot of the other strains, but just from the grain production and the organoleptic properties of those, uh, both the aroma and the flavors of those, again, very tart, very umami, lots of mushroom flavors, um, lots of tropical fruits and, and uh, citrus fruits and, and apple types of aromas and flavors as well. So good flavors for sour beer production, for standard beer production, probably not so much. Okay. With a cold storage time measured in weeks, there doesn't seem to be any processing time advantage to this method, right? No, and, and that's, um, you know, we were looking at bypassing the, the malting process from both a time and an energy as well as water usage perspective. And the, uh, yeah, the time perspective certainly went out the window with that cold storage. Um, but it, there, there were considerable water savings versus traditional There malting. did seem to be, yeah, about half the water usage that you would get from, uh, or, or that you would use in, in typical uh, malting, in the typical malting process. Are there any other Koji strains that you're uh, dying to evaluate? Uh, I'm sure there are. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's definitely difficult to find these Koji strains. Um, the, the ones that you find, the, the traditional ones that are used in Japan, they're generally labeled in Japanese, and my Japanese is a little rusty. So, um, yeah, d trying to discern wh which strain that is or species that is is challenging. We did find somebody uh, in Austria, actually, with uh, good identification and a good number of strains, and he seems to be expanding both in size and I think the number of strains, too. So I think certainly any new strains that we can get our hands on, we'd, we'd be happy to use. Cool. That's all I got. You guys got anything else you want to add, anything we missed, or um, any, anything else you want to mention? I, I just want to give a shout-out to uh, the Carolinas District for the NBAA. All right. Aaron Wall is uh, dying for me to say that, so okay. go Carolinas. All Good right. representation here. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, just want to say thanks to the university, Dr. Taubman, again, for uh, giving me this opportunity and to the Master Brewers Association. This has been an awesome experience, and I hope uh, other folks uh, start looking at Koji a little more closely. It's really got a lot of potential. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Thanks, John. That was Tom Williams and Brett Taubman live from the 2019 Master Brewers Conference in Calgary. All Master Brewers members can now get their very own free copy of this presentation along with all the other outstanding posters and presentations from Calgary. Download your copy of the conference proceedings at mbaa.com or check the show notes for a direct link. Have you figured out which brewing conferences you'll be attending this year? there's one that should be your top priority. Like the Olympics, it only happens every four years, and it attracts the best minds in brewing from across the globe. The World Brewing Congress is hosted by ASBC and Master Brewers in collaboration with the Brewery Convention of Japan, the European Brewery Convention, and the UK's Institute of Brewing and Distilling. It's hands down my favorite brewing conference, and it's packed with the best technical presentations, posters, and networking you will ever experience. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you should be there. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? 
Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Fermentis. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stop.